Hallo und schöne Grüße von City Breaks. Hallo, greetings from City Breaks and welcome to City Breaks Munich, episode 14, which is going to be the very last episode in the Munich series and in which, fittingly, we're going to cover the topic which I think most people would come up with if asked, what do you most associate with the city of Munich? I think if you ask that question worldwide, some people would come up with other things that we've already covered, but the biggest group would probably say beer or the Oktoberfest. If you picture yourself visiting Munich, you'd probably see yourself perhaps in one of the big beer halls or maybe out in one of the beer gardens. Enjoying an atmosphere that the Germans refer to as Bierseligkeit, which really translates as beery bliss. That was the dictionary form that I came across. This may not be a phrase you ever actually use in English, but it conjures up that sort of feeling of contentment you might have if you sat back with a glass of some of the world's very best beer, preferably in congenial company. And the association of Munich with beer goes back centuries and centuries to the early days of the monks in medieval times, They, it was, who are first thought to have brewed beer for themselves and then eventually for other people. But a key date would be November the 30th, 1487, for on that date, one Duke Albrecht IV issues an ordinance which read as follows. Beer should be boiled from nothing other than hops, barley and water. This became known at the time as the Reinheitsgebot, the purity law, and it forms the basis of today's beer purity laws, which still apply. I think today there's a fourth ingredient. You can add yeast to your hops, barley and water, but nothing else. Certainly no preservatives. And that's one of the things that makes people think that the best beer in the world is brewed in Germany and particularly in Munich. In the 1830s, there was a travel writer called August Lewald who liked to come up with an adjective to describe the characteristic smell of the various cities that he visited. So when he went to Bremen on the North German coast, his word was fish. When he went to Messina, it was lemons, and he wrote, quote, Munich smells like hops. It was a bit later in the 19th century, say around 1860, when beer factories were built, and the production of beer went from being a small-scale operation to being something done on an industrial scale. And that was really the beginning of the export market and the enjoyment of German beer, not just in Germany, but all over the world. And the statistics today are quite incredible. Bavaria produces about 23 million hectolitres of beer every year and it's said that the people of Munich drink on average 170 litres of the stuff per head of population. It's a little bit of a moving picture, so 50 years ago, say, there were about 1,500 breweries in Bavaria, amazingly. Today it's more like five or 600. Many of them have amalgamated into bigger concerns, but there are also new little start-up companies that perhaps brew craft beer or something very unusual, new flavours and so on. But as anybody will tell you, Munich beer is basically produced by the big six, the main breweries. And I'm going to go through three of them and tell you just a little bit about their history. Munich's oldest brewery is the Augustina, which was founded in 1328 and run by the Augustine St. Augustine monks. They were brewing beer in their monastery, which was just outside the Munich city walls, in an area called Haberfeld, which in modern German really means oat field. They saw their work as being the task of helping the poor and helping the sick, and one of the things they were able to help with was the fact that safe drinking water was very difficult to find. Wells were often contaminated by sewage, and so people would prefer to drink beer than water if they possibly could because water was boiled as part of the brewing process and therefore much safer. 
The monks took to giving out beer for the poor to drink, a sort of half-drink, half-food stuff. Sometimes they provided it in the form of a soup. And today, in some Munich cafes, you can still find beer zuppe, beer soup, on the menu. The Augustinians were suppliers of beer to the Wittelsbach family, so to a Munich royalty, right up until 1589, when one of the family, Duke Wilhelm V, in fact, decided that he would found his own brewery, the Hofbräu, Hof being the German for court. But the Augustinians carried on, taking it all very seriously. For example, in 1759, we know that they were some of the first members of the Bavarian Academy of Sciences. So they weren't just brewing it, they were really thinking about what they were doing. But in the early 19th century, everything turned more secular, the monastery was dissolved, and so the brewery was in difficulty. It was run by the state for a while, and then it was sold into private ownership. And it was during the 19th century, while it was privately owned, that it really began to grow. It was owned for several generations by the Wagner family, one of whom is better known as the musician Richard Wagner. But it continued to thrive, opening bigger factories, opening the Augustina Keller and Beer Garden. And although it was badly damaged in the bombing of Munich during World War II, it was completely renovated afterwards, and is today very much one of the big six. One of the others is the Hofbräu, the one that was originally an offshoot of the Augustina, founded by Wilhelm V in the 16th century. He claimed to have a very, quote, thirsty and demanding household, so he decided it would be better to brew his own beer, have it just how he liked it, and in fact he soon decided that what he liked was wheat beer. So then he issued a decree saying that nobody else, no other brewery, could produce Weiss beer or wheat beer, and he would have the monopoly. It was at the beginning of the 17th century, in 1607, when the brewery moved to a bigger building and began to sell its produce to the public as well. That was the beginning of it being a commercial operation. It has quite a similar history to the Augustina Boy, growth during the 19th century, destruction during World War II, and then being rebuilt. For the Hofbräuhaus Beer Hall particularly, they were very careful to keep the old style, to build it exactly as it had been, and it was reopened in 1958, which was the year of Munich's 800th birthday. And then the third very well-known brewery I wanted to mention is Löwenbräu, which literally means Lion's Brew. There's some dispute as to when it was founded. Some people will claim early in the 14th century, but there's no written proof of it being in existence until 1746, when it's mentioned in the Munich tax records. It gets its name, Löwenbräu, Lion's Brew, from the fact that the city founder was Henry the Lion. And it's known that there were frescoes in the first brewing house that they had in the 17th century, which showed Daniel in the lion's den. The 19th century version of the company was bought by one Georg Brey, who built it up very successfully through the 19th century. It hit problems, though, in World War I, because Löwenbräu, of all the big brewers, was the one that was most into exporting, and of course that became impossible during the war, so that affected business very badly. And just after the war, they merged with another company run by the Schulein family, who were Jewish. The result of that was that in the 1930s, the Nazis started to call people to boycott what was known as the Juden beer, the Jewish beer, the Löwenbräu beer. Hermann Schulein, who was in charge of the company in the 1930s, emigrated to America and started his own brewery. But the Löwenbräu company did recover after World War II and grew into one of the big six. 
It might be the brand that's best known outside of Germany, and that's because they do brew under licence in many other countries in the world. So if you've drunk Löwenboy, you need to know that really only in Munich can you drink the real stuff that's actually brewed in the city of Munich. The rest of it is probably being produced elsewhere, albeit to their recipe. So much then for the big six breweries in Munich. Let's think about the beer halls and the beer gardens of which there are said to be about a 100 in Munich, if you count the ones in the city centre and the ones in the suburbs, and which between them offer about a 100,000 seats. The most famous is probably the Hofbräuhaus, and it's described by Rüdiger Liedke in his book 111 Places in Munich You Really Ought to Know, as follows, quote, The Hofbräuhaus is an institution known the world over. Its image is inseparably linked to Munich. It stands for Bavarian conviviality, merriment, and, as the Bavarians would say, Gemütlichkeit, cosy atmosphere, and Bierseligkeit, beery bliss. I think it would be fair to say that it's Munich's best-known pub, and it dates from 1896. If you go there, you'll find a massive ground floor, which is called the Schwemmer, with seating for about a thousand people, and where some 10,000 litres of beer are served every day. If you go at lunchtime or in the evening, you're quite likely to find a brass band playing. And something else to look out for is their collection of padlocked beer tankards. These are owned by some of the citizens of Munich. It's said to be that only by inheritance can you get hold of a key to one of them. You certainly can't buy yourself one. And as a visiting foreigner, I think you've got no chance. And something else that you may not know about is... That behind the massive beer hall itself, if you go through it and then through an archway, you'll find a lovely little garden, also described in 111 places in Munich you really ought to know. Quote, A wonderful garden with curving arcades, the Löwenbrunnen fountain and ancient chestnut trees. The outdoor Hofbräuhaus is a real gem for up to 400 guests, a downtown beer garden in unexpected surroundings. A second institution is the Augustina Keller, a vast beer garden with seating for about 5,000, shaded by ancient chestnut trees. If you go there, you'll find about 200 tables which look a little different. They're decorated. They have ceramic plaques on them, often with Bavarian motifs. And these are the Stammtische, the tables for the regular customers. So don't, whatever you do, sit at one of those. Inside there's a surprise, this time in the shape of the Muschelsaal, or Muscle Hall, which is a 19th century room with a big glass dome, art deco style, and the walls are decorated with hundreds and hundreds of real mussel shells. It's thought to be really one of the classiest establishments in Munich. Here's Rüdiger Liedke on the subject. Quote, to drink Edelstoff here, the most famous of the Augustina beers, makes you feel like royalty. And here too, there's an arcade garden out at the back, decorated with frescoes. Alternatively, you can find several beer gardens in the Englischer Garten, the largest of which is clustered around the Chinese Tower, or the Chinesische Turm, as the Germans call it. And here you'll find about 7,000 seats, and right nearby, a playground and a carousel. So if you have any little people in tow, perhaps this is the one for you. Another very big beer garden, thought to be the biggest in Munich, in fact, is the Hirschgarten, which is seating for about 8,000 people. That's up near the Nymphenburg Palace, so less a city centre than out a little bit. And it's called Hirschgarten, Hirsch being the German for deer, because deer are still kept there, even today, in an enclosure in the park. So there are a number of ideas if you want to visit a Munich beer garden. Of course, it's quite fun to just wander around and find your own as well. 
They do have a very particular atmosphere. I found a piece of writing by somebody called W.E.B. Dubois, who was an Afro-American visitor in the 1930s, and he did manage to capture this atmosphere very well, although when you read it now, you do wonder what an African-American made of Munich in the 1930s when Hitler was at the height of his powers, but in this extract he doesn't mention that. He merely writes the following about the beer gardens. Quote, It is always astonishing, especially in southern Germany, to see how much time is spent in the beer halls, and yet one is still tempted to say that it's hard to see how ordinary, educated human beings could spend their time better. The beer halls are large and well-aired. The music, when there is music, is good. The proportion of alcohol in the best beer is very small, and the social intercourse with friends and of strangers with each other gives a public courtesy which one cannot find in America. And then there's one last brewery that I'd like to mention, something called the Forschungsbräuerei, which translates as Experimental Brewery. It's a little bit outside the city centre, in a suburb called Perlach, but it's been quite well known ever since the 1930s, when it was started by a brewer, one Gottfried Jakob, who decided that instead of working for the big breweries anymore, he would set up on his own and do some research and see what new ideas he could come up with. He's always adhered to the Reinheitsgebot, so the brewing law, saying that you could only use certain ingredients. But he still managed to produce some slightly different beers, which people like to go out to the brewery to try. So he soon opened a little Stubel as well, where you can sit and eat and drink. It was run by several generations of his family. I think it's been sold to somebody else now, but it's still there. And still serving its quite unique beer in the ceramic tankards, which he decided were the best vessel to keep beer cool and allow it to keep its freshness. So if you fancy trying something a little different, try the Forschungsbräuerei. Not being much of a beer drinker myself, I don't want to offer any advice on which things to try. There are in fact quite a lot of people who've got their own websites and blogs specifically on the subject of Munich beer and in which you can read what they liked best and why and how one differed from another. So if all of that interests you, I suggest you go a-googling. But as my tiny contribution, I thought I might just pass on a few words from German, which are handy to know if you're going to a beer garden. The first one is a very confusing word, Weiss. Weiss is the German for white, so if you see Weiss beer on the menu, you'd be tempted to think that means lager. But no, Weiss in this context means wheat, so Weiss beer is wheat beer. If you actually want a lager, you need the words hell, which means light, or blonde, as in blonde. And if you want something darker and fuller-bodied, then the word for dark is dunkel. So ein dunkles is a dark beer, and helles a lager. And if you're also not much of a drinker, you might find the word radler quite useful, R-A-D-L-E-R, because that is a mix of beer and lemonade, so a shandy. Quantity-wise, one word you definitely need is the word mass. That's the typical quantity in which you order beer and a mass which is really the German word for measure but in this context it's a litre so if you order ein mass beer you will get a full litre. Germans on the whole or certainly Germans drinking beer in Munich don't seem to find this a large quantity. And then a couple of useful words for the vessel in which you're going to drink your beer. Stein is the German for tankard, less used actually in Munich. They tend to use the word krug which really means jug, k-r-u-g, You can get meals in a beer garden or a beer hall, but a lot of Germans actually don't bother so much with that. They stick to the Brotzeit, Brot bread, Zeit time, and a Brotzeit is a snack. So typical snacks that you might find if you want to drink your beer Munich style would be pretzel. I think most people know what pretzel are nowadays. 
But a word that might make you look twice is radi, because that's another thing to eat alongside your beer. And radi does actually mean radish, surprisingly. They're not the small, very strong radishes that we tend to favour in Britain. They're much larger, milder versions, served, cut into very thin slices. If you want to be truly Bavarian about it, you can bring your own radi messer, radish knife, and perhaps even your own radi, and use the implement to cut it in the style in which they like to eat it. So you push the radi messer down into the middle of the radish and twist, and out comes a spiral of radish, which you can then enjoy with your beer. Then there's obatsta, which I may have mentioned, I think, in the episode on food. But just to repeat, obatsta is a creamy cheese, traditionally camembert, but not always, mashed up with beer and onion and often sprinkled with paprika, which you spread on your pretzel or your bread. The point of it, I think, really, is to provide a layer of fat that will help you soak up all that alcohol. Equally, on the snacks menu, you might find pressac, which is cooked meat served in jelly, often, for example, chopped up ham in an aspic jelly. Then there's Leberkäse, which is made up of the two German words for liver, Leber, and Käse, cheese, and which in fact contains neither, but which is a kind of meatloaf, usually a pork meatloaf, served in slices, sometimes served warm. Alternatively, there's Leberwurst, liver sausage, or Brathering, herring. And if you want to be a little less traditional about it and actually have a proper meal along with your beer, then you're likely to find things like Henschen chicken or Schweinesbraten for sale everywhere. The other aspect of the Munich beer culture, of course, is the beer festival. Everybody knows about the Oktoberfest, but I wanted to start first by mentioning a different festival, which is called the Stark Beer Fest, which literally means Strong Beer Festival, and which takes place in the spring and which has quite a history to it. It dates right back to 1634, which was the year in which the monks from the Neudeck Monastery got the idea that the way to get through Lent, when of course there were a whole lot of things they weren't allowed to eat, was to brew beer. Beer wasn't forbidden, it was a sort of half drink, half food, and so it saw them through, sustained them when they couldn't eat other things. And gradually they got the idea that they could then sell the beer to the public. And it was very popular, went down very well, and it was soon noticed that actually the beer that the monks produced was very strong. They took to calling it Doppelbock. Doppel is double, so it's sort of implying that it's twice the strength of any other beer. It had a second nickname, in fact, which was Sankt Vater Beer, Holy Father Beer. And it gradually became a tradition that during Lent, this Stark beer would be for sale. If you want to stick with tradition... The place to enjoy this is in one particular brewery, the Paulana Brewery, which is in a district called Nockherberg. And strictly speaking, it should be served between Ash Wednesday and Good Friday. Although, in fact, this is a much looser tradition these days. All the big breweries produce Doppelbock and you'll find it for sale throughout the city. Although still usually in the period of Lent. That's a much less well-known beer festival outside Munich itself, but of course everybody worldwide has heard of the other one, the Oktoberfest. 16-day extravaganza which attracts six or more million visitors every year, and which for some reason, which perhaps the Germans understand but I still don't, it takes place mainly in September. I think it usually ends two or three days into October. And it's held on an area to the southwest of the city, not that far from the main railway station, called the Theresienwiese, which translates as Theresa's Meadow. And it started very precisely in 1810, which was the year that Crown Prince Ludwig, who later became Ludwig I, got married. He chose as his bride Princess Theresa from Sachse-Hildeburghausen, 
and for the wedding there were going to be six days worth of celebrations which culminated in horse racing held at the city gates. This was so successful that it was decided to make it an annual event. Equally, as part of the festivities, Prince Ludwig's father decided that he would rename the area of town where the horse racing was held after his new daughter-in-law, and from then on it's been called Theresienwiese. Horse racing continued up to 1960 and then was stopped, but the beer festival which ran alongside it has grown and grown into the massive event of world renown that it's become today. On the first day, at 10.45, it kicks off with a Festzug, which is a carnival procession really, called the Brewer's Parade in some guidebooks, when the breweries get out their old horse-drawn carriages and parade through the streets with them. They are then duly met at the opening of Theresienwiese by the Mayor of Munich, who brings a mallet with him, because his job on this occasion is to climb up onto the first carriage and bang his mallet into one of the barrels and then utter the statement which opens the beer festival. He shouts, O tapped ists, which means it's tapped. So really, the beer is now flowing, let the party begin. All the beer sold at the Oktoberfest has been brewed in the Munich area. Lots of the breweries have their own tents, serving all their usual beers, and quite often they brew something special just for the festival. So it might have a title, for example, like Wiesenbier, which means meadow beer. In other words, the beer that's brewed specially to be drunk on the Theresienwiese. And no messing about, it's generally sold, unless you specify otherwise, in a mass, so in a litre glass. It is mainly about the beer, with the music and the costumes alongside, but there are other aspects. There's a fun fair, there's an agricultural show alongside... And on the first Sunday, there is a costumed procession through the city centre, a chance to see all that tracht, all those Bavarian costumes, so lederhosen, leather trousers, dirndl, those bunchy skirts that the women wear with white blouses and quite tightly laced bodices. I read somewhere that the costumes fell out of favour a bit in the 70s and 80s, but they've made a bit of a comeback. And a writer called Ben Donald, in his book Springtime for Germany, addresses this question. This is what he wrote, quote, The lace and check patterns had a childishness that oozed a naughty, Heidi-like innocence, especially given the plunging neckline and trussed-up chest à la liaison dangereuse. The European Union, that great leveller and arbiter of fun and good taste, had, in 2004, threatened to make excessively décolleté necklines illegal at the Oktoberfest. Munich's mayor was so outraged he is reported to have said, a waitress is no longer allowed to wander around a beer garden with a plunging neckline. I would not enter a beer garden under these conditions. Perhaps you wonder what the unreconstructed chauvinist was doing as mayor of Munich as recently as 2004, or maybe you think the whole thing's just a bit of fun. Either way, that does make the point that the costumes are really quite an integral part of the whole thing. And although it is a pretty secular event... It's worth noting that in Catholic Bavaria, it's thought very important that part of the Oktoberfest should be a mass, generally heard in one of the tents on the first Thursday of the festival. I hope I've managed to establish what an integral part of Bavarian culture beer is. And just to finish, I wanted to mention a couple of ways in which you can deepen your knowledge all of that should you be visiting Munich. The first one is the Beer und Oktoberfest Museum, so the Museum of Beer and the Oktoberfest. In a building which is billed as the oldest residential building in Munich, dates from 1340. So that's quite interesting in its own right to see inside. 
and they promise us that if you go to visit, you'll find out all you ever wanted to know about das Volksgetränk, the people's drink, which is the way they describe beer. So they'll tell you all about the history and the production and the purity law. There's a whole section on the Oktoberfest explaining how this wedding feast, which took place once on the Theresienwiese, grew to be a, quote, Bayerisches Nationalfest, so a Bavarian national festival, or indeed has reached the status, as they put it now, of das größte Volksfest der Welt, the biggest folk festival in the whole world. And of course it goes without saying that joined on to the museum is a Museumsstubel, so a little museum pub, if you like, where we're promised lots of Gemütlichkeit, Bayerische Tradition, so Bavarian tradition, plenty to drink and a few things on offer as part of a Brotzeit, so snacks. So that's one way to find out more. And a second way is to, perhaps via the tourist office, find out about some of the guided walks there are, because some of those actually have a beer theme. There's one, for example, that I read about, run by munichwalktours.de. That's their website address, should you wish to look it up, which promises you a tour of Munich in the company of people who know all about these things, at which you can sample beer at various beer halls and visit a brewery, and which will culminate in a convivial hour or two at the Hofbräuhaus itself. You'll promise the chance to try Weiss beer and lager beer, to try some seasonal beers, and to find out all sorts of things like why beer is good for your health and what a real beer garden is, and also plenty of history, so the history of the monks and brewing, and all the detail you could want about the beer purity laws. Of course, there's nothing to stop you taking yourself on your own tour of the Munich beer halls. So, so much for beer in Munich then. That pretty much rounds off the City Breaks Munich series. A fitting place to end, I hope you'll agree. So I hope you've enjoyed the 14 episodes on Munich found out some things that you didn't know, perhaps been inspired to visit or revisit that lovely city. And before I sign off, I can just let you know that the next City Break series is going to be on another really very unique city, quite different, one founded from scratch only 300 years or so ago, and which became a stunning imperial centre, one of the most talked about and written about cities in the 19th century, and with a 20th century history all of its very own too albeit rather different from Munich's. And that, if you haven't guessed it already, is St Petersburg. I hope very much that you'll stick with us and join us for a tour of St Petersburg starting next week. But in the meanwhile, I'm going to take the opportunity to thank you once more in German very much for listening. Herzlichen Dank. And to sign off for the last time, at least until the next German city, which will be quite a few series away, I think, with the German version of Goodbye, namely Auf Wiederhören. <laughs>